Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Thank you for joining us online today, and may I add my welcome to that of Joe's, and hope that you've had a really good week. Two weeks ago, we began a series entitled The Spiritual Journey of a Godly Man, and we based it on the the life of Habakkuk, which we find in the book, obviously, that he authored. This is a document of a godly man's cry to God about what is happening in his nation and in his world, and he is worried about the wickedness, the injustice, the oppression, and all the stuff that is wrong that is going on around him. And we discover that God answers him. We started to explore and discover that a book like Habakkuk may may not give us the answers that we want, but it'll give us the answers we need. That God sees everything, that God knows everything, and that he will never abandon us, his people. And at the end, that we have to make a choice whether or not we trust him or we don't. And in so doing, learning that we can bring before him all our questions, uncertainties, anxieties, and fears, and that we can leave them with him. Last week, we looked at Habakkuk's conversation with God and highlighted three aspects, three simple points. First, tone. What does God sound like in our head? Truth, whatever the hard thing he is saying or asking of us, he never lies. And thirdly, trust. In the end, what we actually believe about God is crucial. One of the most repeated phrases in scripture is this, that God is good and his love endures forever. Today, we move on and we come to the heart of chapter 2, which is the heart of the whole of Habakkuk's narrative. And we examine the truth that God will have the last word. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, and I'm going to read it in the message version. And when I come to uh, unpack it in a few moments, I'm going to read it in the English standard version to give us a little bit of a variety, a little bit of difference as we come to it. Chapter 2, verse 6, starts like this. Note well, money deceives. The arrogant rich don't last. They are more hungry for wealth than the grave is for divers. Like death, they always want more. But the more they get is dead bodies. There are cemeteries filled with dead nations, graveyards filled with corpses. Don't give people like this a second thought. Soon the whole world will be taunting them. Who do you think you are? Getting rich by stealing and extortion. How long do you think you can get away with this? Indeed, how long before your victims wake up, stand up, and make you the victim? You plundered nation after nation. Now you'll get a taste of your own medicine. All the survivors are out to plunder you. A payback for all your murders and massacres. Who do you think you are, recklessly grabbing and looting, living it up, acting like the king of the mountain, acting above it all, above trials and troubles? You've engineered the ruin of your own house. In ruining others, you've ruined yourself. You've determined your foundations rotted out. 
your own soul. The bricks of your house will speak up and accuse you. The woodwork will step forward with evidence. Who do you think you are, building a town by murder, a city with crime? Don't you know that God of the angel armies makes sure nothing comes out but of that but ashes? Makes sure that the harder you work at the kind of thing you do, the less you are. Meanwhile, the earth fills up with awareness of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. Who do you think you are, inviting your neighbors to your drunken parties, giving them too much to drink, roping them into your sexual orgies? You thought you were having the time of your life. Wrong. It's a time of disgrace. All the time you were drinking, you were drinking from the cup of God's wrath. You'll wake up holding your throbbing head, hangover, hangover from Lebanon violence, hangover from animal massacres, hangover from murder and mayhem, hang from multiple violations of place and people. What's the use of a carved God, so skillfully carved by its sculptor? What good is a fancy cast God when all it tells is lies? What sense does it make to be a pious God maker who makes gods that can't even talk? Why do you think you are saying to a stick of wood, wake up, or to a dumb stone, get up? Can they teach you anything about anything? There's nothing to them but a surface. There's nothing on the inside. But oh, God is in his holy temple. Quiet, everyone, a holy silence, listen. How God makes all things right is the question that we are exploring and have been going through for these last two weeks. Today we come to this remarkably powerful and challenging set of verses in chapter two. If we read back before these, what we've just read, we will see that Habakkuk has heard God speak to him a second time. And this is what he says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There, I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. Then the Lord said to me, write my answers plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It, descri it describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness <laughs> to God. In these verses, Habakkuk is describing, he is letting us know of a decision he has made. He has made two complaints to God. Why do the wicked prosper? And why does evil seem to be on the ascendancy within the people of God, not outside, why is wicked on the ascendancy within the people of God? And he cries, why do they get away with it? And now he is ready to move on to listen to what God is going to share with him about some things from a godly perspective. So there are three things that we are going to highlight today as we read of how God says to Habakkuk, I am going to bring about judgment on my people from people that you don't even like. You may ask, 
Well, Chris, what can a message from nearly 2,700 years ago have for us today? I would like to say incredibly relevant, incredibly uh, necessary for where we are here today. And the first thing that Habakkuk makes a decision about is to wait. God has spoken and he says, I will wait. This story is not over. Twice we note that God has explained to him what is going to happen, but it's not finished until he, God, says so, and God knows what he is doing. In response to these two answers, Habakkuk says, I will stand at the watchtower and I will wait. And then God says to him, write down what I am about to tell you. It will appear. Wait for it and make every effort to wait. It's interesting to note here that in chapter 2, in the early verses of chapter 2, Habakkuk says that he will wait. And God, having heard that Habakkuk says this, says to him, in full knowledge, in full light of what he has heard from this prophet, I want you to wait. It's a little bit of, a, of an overkill. Why is God emphasizing, come on, son, you need to wait? Well, I believe this is because... There is an important factor for the Christian walk here that we need to learn time and time again and not forget. And it's found here in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I believe many of us abandon an answer to prayer too early, too quickly. We ask God why he hasn't answered our prayers. And as he goes to answer, we have already moved on. We look at a situation and we say, oh, it isn't fair. It isn't changing. I prayed about it. But we are only halfway through the situation. We haven't come to the end of the story yet. And I believe this is a crucial lesson from the book of Habakkuk. I know this is hard to imagine, but one of the ways that I seemingly annoy my wife is that I like to know the end of the story before I get there. Whether it be a book or a film or a play, I love to know what happens at the end. She doesn't. And if Hope is watching something or maybe even reading a book, I always want to say to her, can I tell you what happened at the end? And she politely um, says, no. <laughs> I have to confess that sometimes if I know the book that she's reading and I've read it, I'll make up a, a narrative, I'll make up an episode and say, have you come to this bit yet? And it's not even in the book, uh, but she's very kind and gracious with me. You see, whenever we are halfway through a situation, a problem or a season of life, we can't allow ourselves to get restless, get so discontented and unhappy that we just want to get to the end. Life and its events for us as followers of Christ have to be lived out in real time according to his plan and not ours, to his timelines and not ours. It's tough, but sadly, that's the reality. You see, the wonderful thing about faith in the God of Scripture, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is this. When we know him, we already know the end of the story. Even when we're in the middle of what we are now know the situation, whatever difficulties we find ourselves in, it's, we know the end because we know our living God. 
Please don't give up halfway through the fight. Don't walk away when we see a corner in the distance that we don't know what's around it. This man of God, this man Habakkuk had to wait. The people of the southern kingdom had to wait. In fact, a lot of the story of this book is about people who have to wait upon their God. If our lives are in a hard place today, and for many I know that they are, don't give up. Learn to wait, learn to give God a chance to speak something into our lives, into our soul, into our spirit. Wait, but don't wait thinking that he has forgotten about us. Wait trusting and believing and praying that he will do only what he can do. The second thing that God says to Habakkuk, having said to wait, he says, watch. Watch what is happening around you. Watch what is going on. Habakkuk's complaint about the southern kingdom and how they were behaving was that God was going to judge them. It wasn't a personal complaint. He wasn't talking about his own sorrow, his suffering or struggle. He is worried and concerned and asking God. And God says, watch and wait and I will do something. And then from verses 6 to 20, which we have just read, Habakkuk describes five attributes. He reveals to him five attributes about the Chaldeans, the people of God, that he is going to use to send to the southern kingdom and send them into exile. See, some context here may help for today as we look back and learn from this prophet. This, this book, well, this complaint was probably penned around 630, 620 BC. And then some 20 to 30 years later, depending on when one dates the writing of the complaint, the greatest kingdom of the world or the world had ever seen up until now swept down and took control of the southern kingdom. And through three successful deportations, moved the people from Jerusalem to modern-day Iraq and to Babylon for where they stayed for 70 years. And so now God explains to Habakkuk that if he watches the people who are bringing the judgment, they too will be judged. It's about 30 years we are talking about here. And in so doing, as I said, he highlights to the prophet five attributes of these people for which they will be held accountable. He says, I'm going to hold the, accountable, hold the Chaldeans accountable for these five things after they have fulfilled my purposes. And you may rightly say, how is this relevant for today? Well, I would like to suggest that if God goes out of his way to judge a nation, goes out of his way to judge an empire for these things, if he is taking the time to explain to Habakkuk that these are the things that he is holding them accountable and responsible for, then I would suggest that the best thing that we can do is to listen and to read. Because clearly these behaviors are important to God and he doesn't like them. See, there is a starkness, there is a reality check to these verses that we cannot ignore. And these verses say something to us, the people of God, his chosen, his loved ones, his church. And he says, I see what is happening. I know what is happening and nothing gets by me. We may think it does, but it doesn't. And so Habakkuk learns that he has to wait and watch. And if we look closely at verses 6 to 19, we see five times 
in verses 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19, he uses the word woe or alas, and it is repeated. Five times God speaks to Habakkuk about what he sees in the Chaldeans. Five times God speaks and tells Habakkuk he is going to put these things right. God says, wait, I will put it right. But as you watch, I am going to do something that you will not believe. So these five warnings, these five alasses, remind us, reminds, I should say, Habakkuk, that the Chaldean Empire, in all its posturing, in all its strength, in all its so-called glory, in all its swaggering, is rotten to the core, and one day will fall to Almighty God. And the five things are as follows. Ambition, covetousness, ruthlessness, debauchery, and idolatry. And we are going to look at these to see what God may say to us. And we're going to look at the five in the context of the Chaldeans and just take out some simple lessons. In verses 5 to 8, God reminds Habakkuk that the ambition of the Chaldeans is overreaching and it is consuming their life. They are consuming everything they do. They are so ambitious that everything pales into insignificance compared to this. Wealth for the Chaldeans is treacherous and they never have enough. Verse 7 says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. You see, Habakkuk sees a picture of the Chaldeans and their greed, their robbery and their vandalism, and their avarice is all-consuming. They want everything in front of them, and history shows that this happens to every empire. The study of history reveals that when anyone or anything is driven by greed, they become obsessed and controlled by something that is completely insatiable. More, more, more. I have to have enough. But you know, there is no such thing as enough. But sadly, it is true not only for nations, but for people. God says about this empire, as I said, the greatest the world had seen thus far, its greed will consume it. Its greed will eat itself. Its greed will eventually turn and bite it. Habakkuk sees through the eyes of God that this empire, that this ambitious people, an overreaching nation, will eat itself, and its ambition will be its destruction. Verse 7 says, Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled forever. See, we need to note that this language is not figurative or just simply poetic. If we were to go to Babylon today, we would see a devastated ruin. One of the greatest cities of the ancient world, once the place of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, we would see an utterly destroyed, demolished, and devastated city. Why? Because greed, pride, and determination ate it up. Seeing that we're here with the Babylonians, let me at this point reassure and remind us today of how accurate this book, the Bible, is. You see, in Isaiah chapter 13, written approximately 150 years before Habakkuk, maybe around 740, 750 BC, we read the following about the Babylonian Empire and what God says. Behold, 
I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as one shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in for generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent the tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs, which are demons, shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate homes, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. That's Isaiah 13. Isaiah 14, 22 and 23 says this, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. God is telling his people what will happen to Babylon. And if, as I said, we go there today, it is still uninhabited. It is an absolute ruin. Those prophecies are completely fulfilled. Despite many efforts to rebuild it, it is still a wasteland. The Arab nations and peoples refused to live there. They literally won't pitch the tents there anymore. It is full of holes and caves and possessed by wild animals. What we are reading here in Habakkuk and elsewhere is what God will do to people who rise up against his people, that they will see the devastation. Despite all the efforts, even under Saddam Hussein, this land has never, ever been inhabited again after it was destroyed. Secondly, we see their covetousness. It will destroy them. We understand that they wanted to rule the world. They wanted to control everything. They wanted to be the center of the universe. Verses 9 to 11 says this, Woe to him who gets evil gain from his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The imagery here is of a group of people who are so aloof that they build their empire like nests of eagles high up in the mountain, thinking that the higher they go, the safer they will be, that they want to rule the world and they want to be separated from it. This imagery is seen also in Obadiah and Job, the imagery of an eagle's nest, an eyrie high up in the mountains, detached and distant. Actually, Obadiah verses 3 and 4 says this, these words, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. But God is saying to this Babylonian nations, I will reach you 
I will find you. I will judge you. You can't run away from me and my judgment. And their covetousness was going to be part of their downfall. Thirdly, God says about their ruthlessness, that their ruthlessness is incredibly beyond words. Hugh Habakkuk describes for us the Chaldeans' approach to destroying people and buildings, having forced labor despite the bloodshed that this brings. They saw people as a commodity that served the purpose of building palaces and enjoying the luxury of the known world. They did it at the expense of the poor, the defenseless, and the weak. God says that whilst you are doing this, I see you. And the cities that you ruin, I will ruin your own city. Your ambition will be destroyed. Your covetousness and your ruthlessness will be exposed. And you will be destroyed. And it's right in the middle of what God is saying about the Chaldean Empire, that he throws this word in, as it were. Habakkuk writes these words in comparison to God's empire. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's as if God is saying, This is what the Chaldeans are like. This is how I'm going to judge them. This is how I'm going to expose them. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But right here in the middle, Let's just push pause, and I just want to remind you, and just to remind the reader, God says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's as if he's giving us this stark comparison between evil and his kingdom. You know, empires will come and empires will go, but one day every square inch of his creation will declare his greatness and the glory of our God. And what we have to do is that we have to wait and we have to watch and see his purposes fulfilled. You know, when we have had an injustice done against us, being taken advantage of or been exploited, when we have been laughed at or sidelined, overlooked, or who knows more, even more so, God sees it. You may ask, why are they getting away with this? Why are they getting away with their behavior? Well, the story is only halfway through how can it be that my life is in ruins because of a court case or an accusation or a lie that was said about me that has stuck despite it being false the story your story our story is not over yet and God says my kingdom is going to cover this creation and now he comes back to the Chaldeans and he talks about their debauchery Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and with and will the destruction of the beasts that terrified you. The hedonism, the self-centeredness of the Chaldeans was legendary. If you know anything about the history or study the history of this time, it was absolutely sick in so many ways. Their pursuit of anything and everything, as long as it meant that they could be happy, will be the end for them. It will destroy them. Habakkuk uses two powerful images. He talks about drunkenness and nakedness. Their nakedness 
their shamelessness, their flaunting of all the lewd desires, which God says, I see it. And he says, I will make them drink the cup of my fury. They have destroyed the nations, but they themselves will eventually be destroyed for their behavior. And then we come to their idolatry. Their idolatry will destroy them. Verses 18 and 19 says about this. Habakkuk asks, what use, what good is an idol? The Babylonians will become like what they worship. See, the names of the gods of the, that the Babylonians worshipped were incredibly informative, are incredibly insightful. Let me give you three adjectives that describe their gods. They were cruel, and they became cruel. They were ruthless, and they became ruthless. And they were useless, and the Babylonians became useless, defeated, and forgotten. God says to Habakkuk, says to us today, Nations become like what they worship. That's a sobering challenge and a poignant question for us individually and as a nation. So these five attributes of the Babylonians, ambition, covetousness, ruthlessness, debauchery, and idolatry, defined who they were. And actually, I believe they defined very much of our society and the Western world. And just as God said to Habakkuk, wait and watch, he says to us, wait and watch, for his kingdom is both now and yet to come. He says, my purposes will not be thwarted. I will deal with every question that you have, every question that you need, I will give to you someday. Today, I would like to remind us that he sees us, that he hasn't forgotten us. He knows what we are going through and he is not too busy to look at our lives. At the beginning, I said there were three things that we needed to wait, we needed to watch, and I'd like to add the third, which is to worship. We need to see how this section of the poem, of the journal, comes to a conclusion before we go on to chapter three in later weeks. With all this information and subsequent questions, with all that is going on, with all that we've read, we hear these incredible words, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. See, one of the amazing truths and realities of scripture is its prophecies, its accuracies, its legitimacies, its authorities. See, the conversation recorded here by Habakkuk takes place nearly a hundred years before Babylon falls and 30 years before they were taken the southern kingdom were taken into exile. 30 years before the Babylonian kingdom is at its peak and at its strongest. Now imagine if you and I were Habakkuk and he is getting ready to wait and to watch. After the first decade, things have got far worse. And after the second, they get worse again. Then after the third decade goes by, nothing improves at all from his perspective and actually you die. You see, Habakkuk never sees the answer to this situation, but he believed in faith that those who came after him would. And 70 years later, the greatest empire up until then was brought to nothing by God. He didn't, he didn't see it, but he believed in faith. You see, you and I might see things get worse in our nations and in our world around us, but it doesn't mean that this is the end of the story. 
when we came to Christ, we didn't come to be part of something that would make us comfortable and prosperous. It may well do. It didn't come to make us happy. It may well do. We didn't come to avoid suffering and heartaches and heartbreaks that we all inevitably go through. When we came to Christ, we were, we were giving our lives to something that will extend his kingdom. And even if we don't see the results of our labor, we know that one day, that one day will come when his glory will cover the seas, that one day he wins and we will see that. We don't lose this fight. God has already won it and everything will be put right. For the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. And this is the culmination of this chapter. I will judge, but I will be victorious because it's not the end of the story. You know, we all get to vote in a, in a few weeks. Come, and come September, or October, I should say, the 17th, when we get to vote, and decisions are made that we agree with or maybe disagree with, God is in his holy temple. I'm sure that like you, I will vote, I will pray, I will do my bit, but my hope is not built on what happens in the coming weeks. My hope is built on the fact that God is in his temple and his all is well with the world. I love the words of an old hymn and maybe now a new chorus. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And some of you will know that song. So today we need to plant our feet in verse 20 that says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. We have our confidence in him. Wherever we are today, whatever we need our God to do for us, we can put our confidence in him and ensure that he is the center of our life. How do we stand in the midst of all that is going on around us, in our nation, and in our country, and in our own lives, in our own families? How do we stand in the midst of chaos, conspiracy, sedition, and confusion? We wait, we watch, and we worship. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.